and welcome to another Linklated podcast on payments regulation. I'm joined on the line by one of our payments regulation experts, Francis Hodgkins. Francis and I are recording this especially early in the morning. Francis, why don't you explain why that is? Well, today we're recording a special episode with our colleagues at Allens in Australia. There's been a lot happening in Australian regulation recently, including the Royal Commission and, of course, open banking. So we thought we'd link up with Allens to swap notes on the latest developments. Thanks, Francis. So to give us the latest on Australian payments, joining us on the line is Nicola Greenberg. Hi, Nicola, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you very much uh, for having me. I'm um, Nicola Greenberg from Allens in Melbourne, and I'm a part of the um, financial services regulatory team. But in particular, I'm a, a retail bank lawyer, so I look at retail payment products, mortgages, credit cards, home loans, fintech, all the kinds of things that consumers would usually deal with. Um, and our team do advisory work on both dispute sections and front-end investments and M&A that has to do with retail financial products. Nicola, as Francis has just mentioned, it seems like there's been plenty going on in Australian payments recently. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So we're in a huge period of change in payments. Basically, we've got a huge amount of innovation happening at the smaller end of the scale with fintech startups. Uh, but then at the other end of the scale, we're just seeing the results of the 2018 Royal Commission into the banking sector. So a lot of the big players are starting to have a lot of soul searching about how they can treat their customers better. And we've also got a huge amount of legislation coming through to implement some of the recommendations about consumer protection that came out of that Royal Commission. So lots of legislative change and lots of innovation trying to work out a better way to deliver banking and payment products in Australia. You mentioned that there is legislation which is coming out of the Royal Commission. What's the background to that? Yeah, so um, in 2018, it was a we had a year-long Royal Commission, and it considered um, banking super, and superannuation and wealth products. But certainly, from a consumer perspective, one of one of the big issues was credit. Um, so not so much payment products, but um, credit products, insurance products, super could cause consumers harm, and we saw a lot of um, really awful stories about people who'd gone into a lot of debt or been sold products that they didn't understand because of commission structures that really incentivised over-servicing customers and, unfortunately, in some instances, charging fees for customers who didn't actually receive any services. So it was some of it was fairly damning. Um, a lot of it was sort of reflective of the fact that there's a huge spread of different kinds of consumers in Australia who are using financial products and there's lots and lots of different areas of vulnerability that probably hadn't been brought to light previously. So it was it was a very testing time for Australia's banks, um, but it also gave us a lot of insight into what financial products might need to do in the future to be a little bit more bespoke and a little bit better at addressing consumer risk. Have any of the initiatives coming out of the Royal Commission focused on payment services? So what's been most interesting about the payments um, industry is that we've had a lot of sort of background legislation that's come in. So one of the entities that popped some negative feedback during the Royal Commission was ASIC, so Australia's Financial Services Regulator. And one of the things it was criticised for was being inactive. So following the Royal Commission, we've just had a huge amount of new legislation come in. 
And one of the most fascinating things that has come in from ASIC is something called the design and distribution obligations, uh, which came through under a narrow scope that suddenly got very quickly expanded. Um, so the design and distribution obligations were initially designed only to protect consumers who were acquiring retail um, investment products, but then there's a lot of speculation as to whether this was Royal Commission pressure or because of the increase in buy-now, pay-later products. But at the 11th hour, the bill was changed to include credit products. Um, and basically what the obligations do is they impose an obligation for anyone providing a product, a financial product as defined by the ASIC Act, to set a target market and then monitor whether they're providing that product consistently with the target market. What is the likely practical impact of having set a target market? If you think about it from a payments perspective, that's a huge obligation to, before you even launch your product, understand who your target consumers are, but then also monitor the consumer data that you have to make sure that your product is being distributed consistently to the people that you think will benefit from your product. That's interesting. So in the UK, we've actually seen similar investor protection provisions under MIFID II, um, which actually require manufacturers and distributors to ensure that the design and marketing strategy of products is tailored to identify target markets. Um, we ha that obviously applies to financial instruments and structured deposits, but we haven't actually seen the expansion in the UK into the credit space. So that's quite an interesting development in Australia. I think it's a, it's a particularly interesting one because in the credit space, it looks like it is intended to capture credit products that would otherwise be out of the scope of our responsible lending requirements. Um, so particularly what we what we call buy now, pay later, and I know it goes under a few different names globally, but products where the consumer accesses 30 days of fee-free credit um, for a purchase has traditionally not been regulated because it's only for 30 days and there are no fees for the credit. But under these obligations, providers of that kind of credit will also have to consider who the consumers are who are accessing their product and also who they think the product would be appropriate for. And that sort of means that when you come back around to it, they need to find out some way of collecting a whole lot more consumer data than they seem to be currently collecting to determine whether the people who are accessing their products can afford to be using this kind of buy now, pay later product um, and whether or not they think that that particular individual is within their target market. Uh, so I think it'll be quite a big thing for an area that tended not to be heavy touch in terms of onboarding consumers and using consumer data about responsible lending and similar things. That's interesting, and it actually touches upon um, another area which I think there's been some development in Australia. It's Buy Now Pay Later has been getting quite a bit of press in the UK just because of the increase in popularity. Um, we've definitely seen some articles in um, the newspapers at, definitely at the start of 2020 on this. Um, Klarna, one of the platforms in the UK for Buy Now Pay Later, announced that 7 million people have used its service in the UK and that's twice, twice as many as the year before and they've had 1.6 million people download the app. So I was just wondering if you could talk a bit more about the developments in the buy now, pay later space. Yes, absolutely. So I think um, what's been interesting about buy now, pay later is how quickly it's taken hold of the Australian market. Um, 
So Afterpay was the, the first to launch and it very, very quickly became prolific across particularly web channels um, for people looking to make purchases but not um, use a sort of more formal type of credit. What has been interesting since is there's a lot of new players hit the market can be difficult to understand what the differences are between the products. And one of the things that's become quite a big issue is the surcharging. Um, so what is similar about all these buy now, pay later providers is that they don't, unless the customers are in default under their contracts, they don't seem to charge them a fee, but they do charge merchants, so the people selling the goods a fee for using the product. Um, and across the different providers, those surcharges that are placed on the merchants seem to differ. Um, there's been a lot of discussion from consumer protection groups in Australia about whether there should be standardised surcharging rules for buy now, pay later, uh, and whether it's appropriate for each of the buy now, pay later entities to just have the power to negotiate with the merchants and offer things on sort of a, a take-it-or-leave-it basis. There's there's not been um, a real solution to this yet. The buy now, pay later providers have come together and produced a code, of, a voluntary code of conduct. But what's interesting about that is that to date it does not refer to a surcharging standard. So we still haven't received any clear guidance either way about whether they're going to self-regulate or whether the government is going to intervene regarding the amount that they can surcharge merchants. Francis, what's the position for buy now, pay later products in the UK? So currently in the UK, these products, given they don't actually charge interest, they fall outside the consumer credit regime. There has been some um, research by the FCA into the products, and back in 2018, a consultation paper was published, and in that paper, the FCA found examples of consumers overestimating their ability to pay off these debts and having to pay interest as a result. So I think that actually is the case where you have um, an introductory period that at the end of that, that period has is interest-free, but at the end of that period, there's possibly charges that are then applied. So CSA has also reported that consumers didn't necessarily understand how charges worked on these products um, and that there was an impact of the charges after an interest-free period which led to some unexpected spiralling debt, and obviously there was a knock-on effect of that to credit scores. Um, a package was brought in by the FCA back in the end of 2019, which the FCA believe will save consumers about 40 to 60 million pounds a year. Um, but these rules don't really touch upon regulating the buy now, pay later industry. Rather, they prevent firms from charging backdate interest on amounts of money that have been repaid by consumers during the buy now, pay later offer period. And they require firms to provide better information to consumers about the offers. And they also require firms to prompt consumers, effectively reminding them when the offer period is about to end so that the consumer can actually uh, repay the credit before they incur interest. Nicola, how does that compare to how buy now, pay later is regulated in Australia? So it's very similar, actually. Um, buy now, pay later is not regulated by um, 
our consumer credit protection laws um, because it's not classified as consumer credit. So while they fall within the broader scope of the ASIC definition of credit, which is what I was speaking about earlier regarding design and distribution obligations, it's not considered to be consumer credit. And that has created some concern. A lot of consumer groups are talking about the fact that because by now pay later providers don't need to do credit checks, it can mean it's very difficult to know what the cumulative effect of using many providers is. So although one provider may limit a consumer's total ability only to go up to, let's say, for example, $1,000, if they're able to go to four different providers to get that amount, then that's $4,000 worth of loans that can spiral into debt and interest payments. So I think one of the, the difficult things is how to characterise this. And I think they're sort of chipping away at the sides of it with the design and distribution obligations, which seem to say, well, if you're providing this product, you need to work out who you are providing it to. And that almost links to, so you need to know if they can afford it. Um, and affordability is, of course, part of our consumer protection regime. Likewise, with the voluntary code of conduct, the providers of these products are sort of indicating where they think they will self-regulate um, so that you don't have other providers who are engaging in sort of more aggressive behaviour in terms of providing the product. Um, and, and something else that's quite interesting that we're seeing is some of the banks and more traditional credit providers are now asking in their fact find whether or not people do use buy now, pay later. So, for example, if you were to apply for a personal loan or a credit card, obviously when they run your credit report, they're not going to see if you're using buy now, pay later and unless there's defaults. So they're asking people to self-nominate whether they use buy now, pay later um, and how much their limits are with the various providers. So it's all sort of seems to be an acknowledgement that while the amounts may be relatively low in buy now, pay later, firstly, well, some members of society, they may be quite big amounts, and also in the aggregate, the effect of multiple defaults across multiple providers could be quite severe. And I suppose for those reasons, the regulators in both the UK and Australia are going to keep an eye on how the markets are developing. I, I would say, yes, absolutely, it's developing. And even though I've just said a whole lot of things about why it could be regulated or what some of the harm is, We've also got to balance that with the fact that it's an innovative payment product. We've got to encourage this kind of innovation in our markets and, and it's good for consumers to have different options for the kinds of credit they may use. On the subject of giving consumers different options, where is Australia in the process towards open banking? So, so it has looked a little bit slow to date, but things are speeding up. Um, so basically what we had initially with open banking way back when it was first announced was that it was designed to encourage innovation in the financial services sector by encouraging consumers to move easily between providers. One of the interesting things about Australians is even though we've had a lot of regulatory investigation of the financial services space, they're very sticky in terms of their banks and they don't they don't tend to leave. Um, so the open banking regime was designed to encourage data sharing, mandatory data sharing by banks if the consumers ask them to share their information with a third party, another financial institution. There have been some challenges in coming up with the, the guidelines and the rules, um, and so they're being implemented in a phased approach. Currently, only the banks are 
using the the API, and I believe it's in a, a test phase only. But the idea is that there will be what's now called a broader consumer data right, and consumers can nominate for their banks to provide details to other financial services providers or other recipients. And then likewise, we're hearing that the government intends to extend the consumer data right to other markets where people may not be getting the best deals or may be reluctant to move, such as the energy sector. Uh, so I think that they're still ironing out some of the creases, but I imagine if the financial services sector is a test case and they get it right, it is likely the consumer data right more broadly will become a part of how Australians move between providers of services. That's interesting. We've we've covered open banking from a UK perspective on um, prior podcasts. So in the UK, the FCA has actually launched a call for input to explore opportunities and risks arising from open finance, open finance being the extension of open, open banking principles to give consumers and businesses more control over a wider range of their financial data. Thank you, Francis. And thank you, Nicola, for joining us and sharing your insights. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Thanks very much, guys. Lovely to be a part of it and lovely to talk to you. See you later. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at Linklaters Tech or email fintech.podcast at linklaters.com. Until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye.